Good morning, Bethesda. It is so good to see every one of you here. My, what a blessing. And for those of you who are joining online, we are so glad that you're joining us as well. I want to start this morning just a little bit differently. I want to tell you a story, and then I'm going to read some scripture and then jump right into the message. The story is about me when I was 15 or 16 years old. Um, I was a sophomore or junior in high school. I really don't remember which, but I had my first high school crush. Anybody remember your first high school crush? So my first high school crush, he was the biggest nerd in the school. He was the president of the photography club. He was in the science club and the math club. And I'm probably going to really age myself here, but the TI-30 had just gotten released, which was the coolest calculator ever. And he carried a TI-30 in his pocket. So he had the thick glasses, he had the TI-30 in his pocket, and he was involved in the math and the science and the photography. And I thought he was the greatest thing ever. And in my high school brain, I started thinking, how do I get close to him? Because I, I really like this guy and I want to draw near, I want to get close to him. And so in my brain, I'm thinking, if I wanna get close to him, I need to find out what he's interested in and get interested in it too. So I joined the science club, joined the math club, bought a camera and joined the photography club. I actually got my first job at a Burger Chef, which might again date me if anyone remembers Burger Chef. I got my first job at a Burger Chef and I saved up my money for maybe four to six weeks so that I could buy my very first 35 millimeter camera. Now I joined all of these clubs. He and I struck up a great friendship because now we had all this stuff in common, but there was a problem. Her name was Pam. Pam would not know a slide rule from a protractor. She was involved in cheerleading and the dance squad, but she and this guy really liked each other. And so that meant that no matter what I did to try to, to, try to draw close to him, it wasn't going to work. Because you see, when you want to get close to someone, it really is a two-way street. It requires not only that you move toward them, but that they move toward you as well. We've all had the heartbreaking experience of wanting to develop a relationship with someone and we start moving toward them and they back away from us. Or someone wants a friendship with us and they start toward us and for whatever reason, we back away from them. To get close to someone, to draw near to someone requires that both parties are mutual and their desire to get close to each other. So holding that in mind, I'm going to read two passages of Scripture for you. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 through 25, and James chapter 4, verse 8. Starting with Hebrews. Since, therefore, brethren, we have confidence to enter the holy place. And let me stop here to just say the holy place that the writer of Hebrews is referring to isn't just any space. It's the holy place of holies. It's that place where the manifest presence of God would have resided in the tabernacle of the Old Testament. We have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he inaugurated for us through the veil, that is 
his flesh. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a sincere heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Now, James chapter 4, verse 8, draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Father, in the mighty name of Jesus, we come before you. Father, we bow our hearts and we bow our lives to you, the one true living God. And we declare, my Father, to your glory and honor that Jesus Christ is Lord. We ask you, my Father, to cause our ears to hear that which is truth, and not only to have our ears hear that which is truth and that which is right, but Father, help us to become doers of your word. That we would leave this place today and we would be quick to apply and to mix the word with faith so that it becomes enmeshed with the way that we do life. What we're really saying is, Jesus, let your kingdom come in our time together and let your will be done for the honor and glory of the great name of Jesus. Amen. There are two basic cycles of feasts in the Old Testament. God dealt with Israel through two different venues, through the law and through the feasts. The feast occurred in two basic cycles, the spring and the fall. In the spring feast, there was Passover, unleavened bread, and first fruits. And that covers that first cycle. And 50 days later, after Passover, you have Shavuot or Pentecost. Those first four feasts have been fulfilled in the death, burial, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ and then the coming of the Holy Spirit. But during the fall, there are three other feasts. There's the Feast of Trumpets. We refer to this day as Rosh Hashanah or New Year. And then there's Yom Kippur, or the Day of Atonement, and then there's going to be Sukkot, or the Feast of Tabernacles. Unlike the harvest that we are accustomed to here in North America, where we have one harvest and it's in the fall, Israel have two harvests. They have a spring harvest and a fall harvest. Now, when you read the prophets, especially Amos, you'll find that God's going to say things like, the first harvest is far spent and the second harvest is almost gone. And it's a warning because see, if Israel for some reason was not able to produce the crops in the first harvest that would supply them, then they always had the second harvest to lean on. So there was the spring harvest and the fall harvest. Why would God put feasts together? What is the purpose of these feasts? I read one uh, rabbi's commentary and he said the Feast of Israel can generally be summed up like this. They tried to kill us. They weren't able to do it. Let's eat. <laughs> but I think there's a little bit more to it than that. The law of God, the giving of the Ten Commandments, brought the government of God 
to the people of God. It gave them moral and spiritual boundaries that would set them apart from all the other nations. There are a couple of things, at least, that set Israel apart from all of her neighbors that surrounded her. The first and foremost was the presence of the living God. If you read through the book of Exodus, you'll find that the people of God are even referred to as the people of his presence because God's presence followed them through the wilderness, a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. And they were known as a people of God's presence. See, all their neighbors, none of their neighbors were able to say that they were a people of the presence of their gods because their gods weren't real. Only Israel could say that they were a people of his presence because he's real and his presence is real and the people could see it with their eyes and you could feel it in the atmosphere. They were the people who worshiped the one true living God. They were a people of his presence and that set them apart from everyone else. The second thing that would have set them apart would be the laws of God that guided and directed their moral and spiritual life. I think more than any other hour, we need to pay attention to this because there is a culture that's swarming and swirling around us and they want spirituality without morality. They want to have spiritual encounters and spiritual experiences, but they do not want any kind of moral or spiritual boundaries around their life. They want to be able to do whatever they want, live however they want, and then have some kind of a spiritual encounter. But I tell you today, our God is a God of moral and spiritual boundaries, and he gives us those boundaries in his law. The feast within themselves were opportunities to involve the entire family and to even teach the children about their role in the community of God. Every feast, all seven of the ones that I've listed for you, had an element that was specifically designed for the children. Because you see, the God of Israel was not just a God for the adults. He was a God for every Israelite, from the newborn all the way to the one who passes away at 98, 99, or 100. The God of Israel knew that it would be important that the children learn about who he was and what he had done and that there be a sense of continuity in their faith. I think that's so important for us, church, to take on the responsibility to become aware of the reality that we, every one of us, it is important for us to reach to the children and to tell them this is what we believe. This is why we believe it. This is why we do this. This is why we do communion. This is why we believe in water baptism. This is why we are baptized in the Holy Spirit. This is why we come together for times of prayer. This is why we give testimonies. To pass on the truths that God has instilled within us to the generation that will come after us. And the feasts were opportunities to do just this. The feast brought about a sense of continuity and reflected the rhythm of God's grand design. You see, our God is, an or is a God of order. We might not be able to understand his structure. We might not be able to understand his order because his ways are not our ways. But I tell you this, God is a God of order and he has a grand design. In so many ways, the feast of Israel would remind Israel of where she came from. 
of what her responsibilities were in the moment of which she was a part and what she had to look forward to in the days to come. Those feasts serve the same purpose for us. They remind us of what Jesus has done for us. They remind us of who we are and what we are in time, in this moment. But they also remind us that there is a time coming, that there is a day coming when the Lord will surely return. Four of these feasts, like I've already said, have been fulfilled. Weeks, first fruits, Passover, Pentecost, all been fulfilled with the life, death, burial, resurrection, and coming of the Holy Spirit. Three of these feasts have yet to be fulfilled. But I believe with everything that's within me that we are on an edge. And maybe we've already even crossed over that edge to where we're going to begin to see these fall feasts come to pass before our very eyes. And if I'm wrong, if not this generation, if not my generation, then the generation to come, they will see these feasts fulfilled. But this morning in the time that we have given to us, I want to focus on one feast in particular. You've heard us say a great deal about this feast. It's Yom Kippur, or the Day of Atonement. I'm going to look at it first from the Old Testament, and then I'm going to press, press it forward into the New Testament so that we can see how it applies and works out in our life. There are three major sections in the Old Testament that mention this day, the Day of Yom Kippur, or the Day of Atonement. The first is Leviticus chapter 16. Leviticus chapter 16 emphasizes the role of the priest in the Day of Atonement. Let me, in very broad strokes, let me just describe for you what this day looked like. From a female perspective, when I read about this, it looks like one wardrobe change after another because the priest has to change clothes eight or ten times on this day. It starts out in the morning like any other day. He gets up, he makes the morning sacrifices and offerings, he puts on his normal, typical priestly garb. But then when he's finished with all of the normal daily stuff, the stuff that he does every day, the high priest then dons his festive garments. He is decked out from the top of his miter to the hem of his garment. He is decked out in bright blues, royal reds, the brightest colors of scarlet and gold that you can imagine. And across his miter, he's going to have written holiness to the Lord. He's going to have on his breast the breastplate that's going to have the 12 gemstones that represent the tribes of Israel. There's a cavity within that breastplate, and inside that breastplate is going to be the Urim and the Thummim, the lights and wonders, those things that he sought direction of from the Lord. He's going to have on this beautifully colored apron with a pomegranate and a bell, a pomegranate and a bell. And I would love to talk to you about how the pomegranate represents the fruit of the Holy Spirit and the bell represents the gifts of the Holy Spirit. And if there's not any fruit, then the bells just clang. But that's not my message today, so I have to move on. <laughs> he would dress up like this. And the first thing he would do is he would offer a young bull for his own sin. In true Old Testament fashion, he would place his hands 
on that sacrificial animal, symbolically transferring his sin to that animal. And then he would slaughter that animal and catch the blood in a basin. And then he would change his clothes from these royal garments to just linen garments, plain, simple linen garments, wash himself and go behind the veil for the second time. The first time he would go behind the veil and he would take the censer of incense to fill the room with smoke. This is another place I would just love to stop and stay for a moment because even the things that compose that incense stacked to Galbania, Annika, and Myrrh, each of them represent a facet of worship. But he would take that incense and he would put it into the Holy of Holies and fill that room with smoke. I wonder if in Isaiah chapter 6, when Isaiah said, I saw the Lord and his train filled the temple and makes reference to smoke, if that's not an aspect of what we find in the high priestly duties. So now, He's stripped down to his linen undergarments, plain linen undergarments. He's washed and he goes behind the veil. Josephus says it was four inches thick. He goes behind the veil and there he makes atonement for his sin. Now, if you read the book of Hebrews, which talks a lot about the day of atonement, notice that Jesus, the high priest, he doesn't make atonement for his sin because he didn't have any. Hallelujah. Then he comes back out again, puts on his festive robes, takes two goats. One goat's going to be released into the wilderness. It's called the Azazel. The other goat's going to be slain for the sins of the congregation. Again, in these priestly, beautiful garments, he's going to catch the blood in a basin. And he's going to go through the same process again. He's going to wash himself, strip down to his linen undergarments, and once again go back behind the veil and there present the blood that's going to atone for the sins of the people. Coming out that time, he stands before the people and he declares to them, your sins are forgiven you. When I say it, it doesn't have a lot of impact. But can you imagine one day a year, One time, the people get to hear those words, your sins are forgiven you. But I think everyone also heard what was unsaid. Your sins are forgiven you, but only for a year. Because in another year, they'd have to go through the whole cycle all over again. And then finally, the priest would come for the fourth and the final time that day and remove the censer of incense and pull it out, and so would be the Day of Atonement. It would be the highest, most holy day of the year for Israel. It would be a busy, exhausting day for the priest. That's Leviticus 16. The second set of scriptures that describe the Day of Atonement for us is in Leviticus chapter 23, verses 26 through 32. This passage emphasizes the role of the people on the Day of Atonement. They are sternly warned that this is to be a Sabbath of complete rest. I read that and I can't help but think, I could never work my way to salvation. I could never make enough money to buy forgiveness. There is nothing that I could ever do, there's nothing you could ever do that would give you the right to come into the Holy of Holies and come in to the presence of a living God and cry, Abba, Father. 
the writer of Ephesians, Paul, is going to put it like this. For salvation is a gift from God. It's not of works, lest any man or woman should boast. God offers us freely and completely the gift of salvation because of the blood of Jesus Christ. There's nothing I could ever do. Because you see, I owed a debt because of sin that I could never pay. But Jesus paid the debt for my sin that he didn't really owe. As the song goes, I needed someone to wash my sins away. And that for me, that for you, is King Jesus himself. The final section of scripture that deals with the Day of Atonement is Numbers 29, verses 7 through 11. And this emphasizes the role of the offering itself. However you choose to look at this holy day, it is preceded by a time of sincere repentance. You have Rosh Hashanah or Feast of Trumpets this year, that's on September 18th. And then you have Yom Kippur, that's on September 28th. During those 10 days, it's called the Days of Awe. If we were Jewish, we would call it the Yamim Noraim, the most awesomest of days. These 10 days are intense days of repentance and fasting. These 10 days are intense where the people come before the Father and they reflect on what they've done and what others have done to them and they release in forgiveness and they ask for forgiveness. It's basically a time of doing personal inventory. In our culture, when we think of New Year, we think of maybe an all-night prayer gathering, or maybe that's way back there in the past. We don't do that too often anymore. But we think of gatherings and parties and, and those little horns that you blow and then what takes place at Times Square in New York City, and everyone's waiting for the midnight and for the ball to drop on Times Square. But it wasn't so with the Jewish New Year. The Jewish New Year became a time of quiet, sincere reflection. God, search my heart and know if there's anything within me that's not pleasing to you. Father, if there's anything that I have done, anything that I am doing that's not right before you, cleanse me from that in Jesus' name. That's why, as a pastoral team, we have orchestrated this time, directed, we believe, by the Lord, for us to come together on September 26th and to call it a time of repentance where we can corporately come together and just seek the face of God on behalf of us personally and on behalf of our nation. This holy day is preceded by this time of repentance, the days of awe. But repentance is not the goal. It's a necessary step toward the goal. And by the way, if you want to know what repentance is and how it's worked out in your life, I recommend that you go back and listen to Pastor Dan's message from last Sunday. That is one of the finest theological messages I have ever heard on repentance. But the goal of repentance, or repentance is not the goal, repentance is a step toward the goal because you see the goal is the presence of the Lord. The goal is drawing near to Him. Because when we draw near to him, that's that place where cleansing and forgiveness begin to flow. The goal of Yom Kippur, the reason for the Yamim Noraim, the days of awe, is so that we can be able to draw near. 
And these two words, draw near, really do sum up for us what Yom Kippur is all about. It is an opportunity through repentance to draw near to God and to be in his presence. The language of draw near takes us back to the Exodus, Exodus chapter 19 and 20 in particular. You guys are familiar with the story. The people of God have been in slavery to Egypt for 400 years. God breaks them out with a mighty hand and they see all the great miraculous works of God demonstrated in the 10 plagues and it didn't stop there. The people of God, they see the water part and they get to go across on dry land and the very thing that saved them became the very thing that conquered the army of the Egyptians. And it didn't stop there. They had manna from heaven. They had water from a rock. During the day, they had the cloud of his presence. At night, they had his fire. These are people that have seen up close and pretty personal the manifestation of God's presence. But they come to the mountain of God. They draw near to that place that they were destined to go to. And here at this mountain of God, the original invitation is for everyone to draw near. The scripture says it like this, God wants them to be a kingdom of priests. He wants every man and every woman to be able to draw near to him and to have fellowship with him. But there was a problem. I have this picture up here, and this is an artistic rendition of what that might have looked like. I liked it because it in some ways portrays the awesomeness of that moment. Just, if you would for a moment, just imagine with me. They're at the mountain of God. They can feel the ground quaking beneath their feet, not with an earthquake, but with the presence of God. They can hear the trumpet blast and the bolts of lightning as it comes down on the mountain of God. They can see the billows of smoke pouring off the mountain of God. It is a sensory overload. And when they see this manifestation of the power and the glory of the Lord, they become afraid and they say, Moses, you go. Let God speak to you and you come back and tell us what he said. Now, that to me is a crying shame because of a fear that was born out of sin and stubborn resistance to lay down their idols and to repent It kept them from approaching God. But I have to ask us the same question. What keeps us from drawing near to the Lord? What keeps us out of the prayer closet? What keeps us, and if you've been listening with me on Wednesday nights, what keeps us from living an altered life? And I don't think our reasons are any different than that of the ancient Israelites. I think that we still struggle with that sin, a fear that's born out of sin and a stubborn resistance to repent and to lay down our idols, that we let those things keep us from approaching God. The invitation in Exodus 19 and 20 was for everyone to draw near. But because of sin, The people of God said, Moses, you go. The next time the language of drawing near is used or implied is in a reference to the high priest drawing near to the Holy of Holies on the day 
of Atonement. I wanted to show you a diagram of the tabernacle complex just so you can have an idea, a visual idea of what's going on. This is the outer court. This is where the people would gather and come to bring their sacrifices. I so feel like Professor Marty now. The first thing that they would come to is the bronze altar. This is where the sacrifice would be made for their sin. But after the bronze altar, you have the bronze laver. This is where the priest would wash. Because you can imagine, after making sacrifices all day, the priest would just be a mess. And so he would need to wash. Then he would go in to the holy place. Here you have the table of showbread, the altar of incense, and the seven-branch lampstand. This is where the majority of ministry took place all the time. But on Yom Kippur, on the Day of Atonement, here's this four-inch veil. On the Day of Atonement, the high priest, just one man, one day out of the year, would be able to go behind this curtain into the Holy of Holies and there atone for his sins and the sins of the people. When you see this and you begin to understand the dynamics of what's going on, when we are told in the Gospels that when Jesus cried out, it is finished, that the veil in the temple was ripped from top to bottom, that which had been unavailable to the people of God, that which had been unapproachable for the common man or the common woman had been ripped apart, and now as many as would claim Jesus as Lord has the right as sons and daughters of God, to draw near unto him in the holy of holies. Hallelujah. I can't help but think of the words of Jaron Davis. Although I'm just a common man, because of God's redemption plan, I can boldly approach the throne. Hallelujah. God is holy, and humanity has corrupted itself with sin. And because of this, Conviction and repentance are the gracious acts of God. Repentance and conviction are not bad words. Repentance and conviction are not words for just the lost. They're words for all of us. The fact that God would convict you of sin, even as a believer, reminds us that he's not satisfied for anything to separate you from him. And the reality that we have the opportunity to repent is nothing less than the immense grace of a holy God. Because the fact that we can repent says we can be made right with him and we can be forgiven. Under the old covenant, one man, one time a year, was able to pass through that four-inch veil and come into the Holy of Holies where the presence of God dwelt upon the mercy seat between the wings of the cherubim. They touched on the Ark of the Covenant, the wings of the cherubim did. I've heard it said that one wing represented the justice of God and the other wing represented the mercy of God. So the Holy of Holies and the Ark of the Covenant and the mercy seat became that place where justice and mercy met. And I have to tell you, it was on the cross of Jesus Christ that the justice of God was met by pouring out the wrath on his son. And the mercy of God was met by the shedding of his son's blood that allows me and you to be called the sons and daughters of God. There in that holy place, 
the lone high priest, would go in and out four times. He went in to fill the room with smoke. He went in to offer the blood for his own sins. He went in to offer the blood for the sins of the people. And finally, he went in to remove the incense. For an entire year, the sins of the nations would be covered, temporarily removed. But in a year, they would have to do the entire process all over again, with sacrifices made throughout the year to cover what their broken humanity could not overcome. Allow for just a moment the impact of Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, to just grip your heart. An entire nation, the people of God, were not permitted to come into the Holy of Holies where the presence dwelt. Not even the, high, not even the priest could go into that room, just one man, one time a year, and probably with a rope tied around his ankle. Only he could go behind that four-inch veil and quickly fulfill his responsibilities and then declare to the people that their sins had been forgiven. The nations around Israel sacrificed to their various gods in order to obtain favor, to hold back plagues, to ask for rain, or to stop rain, as the case may be. But Israel sacrificed to have a right relationship with God. See, it is within the heart of every human being to be right with God. Whether we've clouded that desire and seared our conscience, it's encoded, hardwired into our DNA. But one time a year, that was not enough for our Heavenly Father. He wanted, desired the fellowship of His people. A father who longed not for a single high priest, but for a kingdom of priests that all of his people might come into his presence. In the broadest strokes, this is the Day of Atonement from an Old Testament perspective. But let's look at it from another perspective. If you read Hebrews chapter 10, the entire chapter presents Jesus as the great high priest. He's able to go into the presence of the Father and remain there. The book of Hebrews, I think, says three or four times, and he sat at the right hand of the majesty on high. Only Jesus was invited to sit in the presence of the Father. He is both the superior high priest and the superior offering for the sins of humanity. He is so superior that once he offered his blood for the cleansing of the sins of humanity, another offering was never to be made again, was not needed. So what is atonement? Very simply, it's at one mint. It's a theological term that has a very simple meaning. It means to be at peace with God, to have nothing separating you and God, to have your sins removed and cleansed to such a degree that you can boldly come in to the presence of the Father. Our great high priest, King Jesus himself, has accomplished so much for us in view of Yom Kippur. I want to give you five things that Jesus has accomplished for us through his atonement. He has, number one, he has become, he is the superior sacrifice once and for all. He died and paid for the penalty of sin and there would never be another need for another sacrifice to be made. Let me read Hebrews chapter 10 for you. I'm sorry, Hebrews chapter, um, yeah, chapter 10 verses 10 through 14. 
By this will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And every high priest stands daily ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But he, referring to Jesus, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all times, sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time onward until his enemies be made a footstool for his feet. For by one offering, he has perfected for all times those who are sanctified. Hallelujah! He is the superior sacrifice. Number two, he is the superior redemption. We have been redeemed from the, from the sin or from the curse of sin and of death. Galatians 3.13 says it like this, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. And Romans chapter 8, verse, t, t, uh, verse 2, For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and of death. Let me break this down for you. We've been redeemed from the curse of sin. What that means is simply this. When I sin, it's a choice. Not because I have to. We can no longer say, the devil made me do it. As blood-bought, born-again followers of Jesus Christ, the curse of sin has been broken off our lives. Now, we do know that if we fall, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. If we would but confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But church, let this ruminate in your heart and in your spirit. Jesus not only forgave and cleansed sin, but he changed our nature. And we are growing into that new man and that new woman every day more and more because the curse of sin has been broken from off our lives. But the curse of death has been broken as well. Now, we will all, unless Jesus should return soon, we will all taste physical death. But here's the difference. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Death could not hold him down, and because I'm in him, it won't hold me down either. That's why Paul, when he's writing the book of Corinthians, can say, oh death, where is your sting? And grave, where is your victory? These things have been broken. The curse of sin and death have been broken. We've been redeemed for these things because of the atoning blood of Jesus Christ. The third one, he is the superior victory. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14 and 15. Colossians chapter 2, verses 14 and 15. Tell us that because of his blood and his work at Calvary, now principalities and powers have had to bow their knee. Now, principalities and powers have had a display of them made openly 
Satan has no power over you and he has no power over me because of Jesus. He can try to tempt us. He can try to torment us. He can try to push us left and push us right. But at the end of the day, Jesus has won. And we have the victory because of the atoning of his blood. Fourth, he is superior in reconciliation. Romans chapter 5, verses 8 through 10 says this, But God demonstrates his own love toward us. And while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. But more than, having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more, having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. That word reconciled is a legal term. It means my debt's been paid. You look at the bottom line and it says paid in full because of Jesus. Fifth, this atoning work in Christ Jesus means for you and me a superior revelation. See, the sacrificial death of Jesus on the cross reveals the love and the heart of the Father toward humanity. It's in the Gospel of John more than any of the other Gospels that Jesus' conversation with the Father about the cross is done with revelation in mind. Jesus has come to reveal the heart and the nature of the Father, and it's part of his atoning work on the cross to do just that. The cross is the great hour for which God has longed and humanity has needed. This is the moment where the Son of Man will be lifted up physically on a cross and in glory. So the cross is that moment at which the full glory of God is revealed. In John chapter 17, we call it the high priestly prayer of Jesus. But in John chapter 17, Jesus is praying to his Father, this is right before the arrest, the trial, the crucifixion. And this is how he starts. John chapter 17, verse 1. These things Jesus spoke, and lifting up his eyes to heaven, he said, Father, the hour has come, the hour for his crucifixion. Glorify thy Son, that the Son may glorify thee. Think with me for just a moment. When the Father wanted to give a full revelation of himself, when he wanted to pull back the curtain and let us get a glimpse of his glory, it wasn't in the raising of the dead. It wasn't in the feeding of the 5,000. It wasn't in walking on water. It wasn't in the healing of the lepers. It wasn't in any of that. When the Father wanted us to have a full revelation of his glory, it was in the cross of Jesus Christ. It's no wonder that there is an all-out attempt to remove any mention of the cross from preaching, from songs, from liturgy. It's no wonder that there are those individuals who would say things like, it's offensive, it's barbaric, it's unnecessary. Here's the truth. Without the cross of Jesus Christ, we have no salvation. Without the cross of Jesus Christ, we have no revelation, no full revelation of the heart of the Father. 
You do not grow beyond the cross. You do not grow away from the cross and maintain nearness to God. To be near to God is to be tethered to an old rugged cross. To be near the heart of God is to live your life out at the cross. No longer I that lives, but Christ who lives within me and the life I live in the flesh. I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Without the cross of Jesus Christ, we will never grow into the full maturity that God desires for us. Without the cross of Jesus Christ, we will never know the intimacy and the relationship that he is destined for us to have with him because of Jesus. So in view of all that Jesus has done for us in the spirit of Yom Kippur, what does it mean for us to draw near? The writer of Hebrews tells his or her audience at least six times that they are to draw near. In view of what Jesus has done for us, to draw near, to go boldly before the throne of grace into the presence of God. When I was just a kid, and, and even through my teenage years, my dad was a mechanic. And he wasn't just any mechanic, he was a mechanic specifically of Mercedes diesels. My dad wasn't just a good mechanic, my dad was a great mechanic. He had people all over the southeastern part of the U.S., pay lots of money to have their car towed so that he could fix them. My dad worked on the cars of some pretty famous scientists and some pretty well-known Hollywood figures. If someone's Mercedes diesel could not be fixed, no one could find out what the problem was, they would bring it to my dad because my dad would be able to discern what was wrong with the car and to fix it. But here's the problem. With that kind of a reputation, you had to make an appointment. You had to take a number and get in line, so to speak. You didn't dare call the house because if you called the house or God help you if you came and knocked on the door, you would not be met with a pleasant response. You had to go through the necessary protocol. You had to make an appointment, get on a waiting list, and then, maybe then, my dad would be able to work on your car. I never had to make an appointment to be with my dad. I never had to make a phone call. I didn't even have to knock on a door because I was his little girl. I had access to his presence whenever I wanted. I didn't even have to have a reason. I didn't come into my dad's presence and him say, what do you want? What are you doing here? No. When I went into my dad's presence, I could crawl up into his lap and tell him about the cookie I just ate or the cookie my brother ate and I didn't get. I didn't need a reason. I didn't even have to have a lot of things with full substance to talk to him because my dad loved me because I was his little girl and I could come into his presence and tell him anything I wanted to. I have a heavenly father that's more perfect than my earthly dad. And so do you. You don't need an appointment. You don't need to knock on a door. You just simply need to receive Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior and cry out, Abba, Father. And you can come into his presence. We can just go to him. We don't need fanfare, demonstrations, emotional hype. 
We can just go to him because he's our heavenly father. I can claim him as my father and declare myself as his daughter because of Jesus, my great high priest. So what keeps us from drawing near? Same thing that kept Israel from drawing near. Plain and simple, it's sin. Whether it's sin that has caused you to never receive Jesus as Lord and Savior, repentance unto salvation, or whether it's sin that you've committed as a believer and you just don't want to give it up, or you don't think God will forgive you, and that's confession or repentance of your sin. Sin will keep you out of the presence of God. And that's why repentance is so important. If you want to draw near to God, you will have to repent. And again, it is a beautiful word because repentance also means that I can receive forgiveness and at one mint with my Heavenly Father. This morning, if you have never asked Jesus Christ to be your Lord and Savior, today's a good day to do that. If you're watching online and you're thinking, oh my, I've never received Jesus as Lord and Savior. I've never repented of my sin and asked Jesus to be the Lord of my life. There's a number that's being projected for you. If you will call that number and text to that number, let us know that you've made a decision for Jesus today. And if you want us to get in touch with you, we would love to call you back to pray with you, to walk you through these first steps with Jesus. But if you're in the sanctuary this morning and you're saying, I need to repent, whether it's repent of your sin for salvation for the first time or repent because there's things between you and God, I want to invite, would you stand with me and let's pray together. Lord Jesus, here we are. Father, we confess that Jesus Christ, you are the Son of God. And we believe that Father has raised you from the dead. And we confess that we have sinned against a holy God. We are asking you to forgive us. We are asking you to cleanse us. Oh, Father, would you do a deep cleansing work in our lives and remove our sin from us. Change our nature so that we can be more like you. We thank you, Father, that you've made a way for us to boldly come before your throne of grace through Christ Jesus. And we ask these things in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. Thank you for standing with us. Sin keeps you out of the presence of God, but prayer and worship and repentance keeps you in the presence of God. I want to encourage every one of you to live an altered life. A-L-T-A-R, altered life. A life that's tethered to the altar of God, to the cross of Jesus Christ.